0: Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. This is a podcast that focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. I'm Andrea Litt, and I'll be your host for today's podcast episode. And today I'm here with Holden Reinert, and he's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Welcome, Holden.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Andrea.
0: Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate taking the time. Oh, anytime. Why don't we start with a little introduction? Okay. Tell us about you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um. All right. Uh, my name is Holden. Um. F- originally from New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh. Exit one thirty five. If you're familiar with the area, and then uh, <laughs> the suburbs of Philadelphia. Kind of grew up there, going to high school, and then uh, headed out west and went to the University of Utah and studied uh, English literature and environmental studies. Wow. In Salt Lake at the U, and um, had a great time there. And then, yeah, started working in Montana about five years ago. Uh-huh. Um for the Nature Conservancy. They brought me up in the Centennial Valley and then um made my way to Bozeman there soon thereafter.
0: So that's quite the journey, not just geographically, but there's a lot of changes there.
1: Yeah, couldn't make up my mind for a bit.
0: Well and and that happens. But it's interesting, um the the move, you were doing some moving in the northeast, but yeah. then you booked it to Utah. What was behind what was behind
1: that? I just honestly wanted to go skiing, um, and so I looked around <laughs> and applied to uh, all my universities were within an hour and a half of uh, some ski areas, and I went to visit uh, a bunch of them and hung out in the University of Utah in Salt Lake, and if you've ever been, it's just a phenomenal campus right on the foothills of the Wasatch, and you look out on the front of the Wasatch Range, and you have Mount Olympus and Twin Peaks and just, you know, four to 5,000 foot of vertical gain right there. Um, and went skiing for a few days and just couldn't say no. And, you yeah. know, great institution, good good views, good sports teams.
0: You can't ask for much more.
1: No, it was a pretty easy decision at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> but then there's also this big change in what you were studying. So so can you talk about what made you make the change or what was what made you interested in conservation?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess I started out um, as English Lit and Environmental Studies kind of as a pre-law um, was looking to go into environmental resources and water resource law. Um, so I started out, did that program, and then towards the end, um, they required me to get an internship for my environmental studies. Uh huh. And um, I applied for a fisheries management intern in Colorado, and I didn't get it. Oh, yeah. And in the interview process, the guy kind of scoffed at me because I didn't have any uh, significant science background, especially like chemistry or physics.
0: Because you were doing this environmental studies, and you were doing the the sort of the English thing too. right, so okay. it was more
1: policy based um and then yeah, a ton of writing and reading like right. my thesis was on Shakespeare and read Chaucer and Milton um, that was kind of my whole bit while I was studying the english and then um yeah, had this got rejected for that internship, <laughs> um and it kind of just gave me a reality check that you're not qualified for everything, and then I got another internship uh, at this location called uh Swanner Preserve and Eco Center. Mm-hmm. It's a nature preserve in Park City, about 1,800 acres. And it's surrounded by, you know, pure development, I-80 and, uh, you know, strip malls and housing developments. But it's this little sanctuary of wetlands where moose and elk and sandhill cranes and Columbia spotted frogs kind of all can hang out um, in the midst of this sprawl. So it was a really unique position and um, phenomenal, like, community engagement. And my supervisor there, Al Larson, um, who later became the executive director. She just had this perfect little life planned out where she lived on the preserve in a farmhouse and, um, you know, just got to carry out applied conservation and ecology all day in this little kind of like sanctuary for wildlife and, um, and wetlands in the area. And I didn't even know that was possible. Didn't even know it was a thing. Um, And she was just very kind and took me under her wing and was very patient with me in the learning process and, um, to show me that that was a career opportunity or a career option, at least. Right. Um, and That's then, amazing. Yeah, it was really Sounds
0: great. like a great job and and how cool that you got to experience that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was great.
0: Were there other people that were really instrumental in moving you forward? I mean, it sounds like she gave you one of your first big shots and, and sort of got you going.
1: Yeah, she gave me a great opportunity. Um, there is a doctor of geography at the University of Utah, Dr. Genevieve Batwood, and she was a geomorphology professor of mine. Mm-hmm. And um, we did this eight day field trip, like immersive study, and we just traveled the the entire state of Utah, just going over Utah landforms and geomorphic processes. And uh, I I got really excited about um, studying the physical aspect and geomorphical processes. And she said to me at the end of it, you know, like, this looks like something you should get into, like, you should look into uh, doing something maybe with like geomorphology and fisheries. I kind of scoffed and I was and like, what? ah, nobody's going to pay me for that. Like, <laughs> is that even a real job? Which is ironic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we'll get to what you're working on right now, but we'll, things will come come right around. Yeah, I think it's really great that someone brought all of that rock to life for you by taking you right out,
1: yeah. right out in it. Yeah, and she was just so passionate. I mean, it was an eight-day field trip and she did not stop talking for 14 hours a day. <laughs> and just, you know, look out the window here, look out the window there, like... You know, just going over how landforms change through time, and her uh, her passion for it kind of um, lit a fire in me to kind of look into what that was all about because I I had no idea it was my first class in it, and um, shoot her interest in it allowed me to kind of forge a path in that direction.
0: Nice, yeah. and so that was in Utah. That was in Utah. You Major way to Montana. Yes. Working for the Nature Conservancy. Yes. So Tell us a little bit about that.
1: After my internship, um, I applied for a number of jobs. And of course, in typical ecology fashion, got like two out of 20 yep. <laughs> um, replies. That's
0: yeah, that's pretty good. I know. I know. It's, that's actually a pretty yeah, high, high it's number. Very frustrating, though. Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's very competitive, which, you know, that was all part of the learning process that you have to be competitive, have these good backgrounds, solid foundations. Um, and I applied for a position as like a land stewardship assistant in the Centennial Valley at the Sandals Preserve, and kind of last minute, I got a call asking if I like to spray weeds.
0: <laughs> that, so, did you know what what land stewardship meant? I uh, had you a applied? vague
1: understanding, yeah.
0: And you had never been, presumably, to the Centennial Valley in N- Montana.
1: I've never been to the Centennial Valley in Montana, correct? Yeah. Like most people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just drive right past it.
0: So that's great that you just. You threw your hat in the ring for this position you weren't really sure yeah, what
1: it was going to be about? <laughs> I had no—I remember driving up there after, like, you know, quitting my job and moving up and just calling him and just—or calling my supervisor, Nathan, and asking if I needed bedsheets. Like, I had no—I didn't even know where I was going. I had to ask for directions on the way. Like, I just committed to it with abs- absolutely no uh, background information well, on what the job would entail. You. yeah. Because yeah. the
0: Centennial Valley is one of the most lovely places.
1: Oh, phenomenal! <laughs> I've ever yeah, been. it's um, it's nice and empty, and and the views were great. We we're on the south side or the north side, so the south southern end of the Gravelies. so we get to look out uh, on the Centennials and Mount Jefferson and the Refuge right there. So
0: you're way in southwestern Montana, practically right. in Idaho.
1: Yeah, I in think- a
0: really big expanse that's that's pretty separated from most other things
1: yeah it's 99 miles to the grocery store (laughs) absolutely and 45 of those are probably on some pretty good old-fashioned dirt roads so and
0: presumably you're doing that work in the summer not in the winter when most of those roads are covered in way too much snow
1: right right although uh james wax who's also in the department he braved two winters out there so he
0: certainly did hats
1: off to him (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how he did that but he's a more of a mountain man than myself
0: yes and so spraying weeds
1: spraying and mapping weeds for private landowners Um, in conjunction with the Nature Conservancy. So the Nature Conservancy has this great approach where um, they involve themselves in the community and talk to private landowners and um, work together with them to achieve uh, mutual beneficial conservation goals. So I spent most of my time in the Centennial Valley and then um, adjacent rangelands like Medicine Lodge and Lemhi Pass and Horse Prairie area, um, pretty much living solo on these ranches and walking and driving every two track within a drainage with my head down, looking wow. for weeds and mapping invasive weeds. Wow. Yeah, so did that for about two and a half summers.
0: And then you became a grad student at MSU or are there more steps in the path Uh,
1: there's a couple more steps, I guess. Um, they started doing a lot of work with uh, stream restoration and beaver mm-hmm. mimicry work. And so I was able to kind of um push my way onto those projects and ask to be the technician for that even though it was very underqualified.
0: I like that push push your way. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's um, good. If you know you want something, you know, just keep asking for the opportunities and a lot of uh weekends spent working for free. Um I helped a PhD student here uh, set up all the hydrology monitoring for those projects um, um on weekends, just Saturdays and Sundays in the rain. Um and then a couple years of that and I started Talking to um, a bunch of professors, one of them which was uh, Dr. Lindsay Albertson here, and she agreed to take me on
0: so um again, before we get to jump into your research, you've talked about a few things that seem to be pretty consistently important in this discipline. It's applying to a lot of positions right and maybe not getting most of them right it's recognizing that it's really competitive, so doing the things that it takes to to make yourself at the top of the pack. Yeah. is doing some things for free.
1: A lot <laughs> unfortunately. of
0: things. Yeah. Um, and, and building up your experience over time. Yeah. And adding to your skill set. Um, so it sounds like those are some pretty big hurdles to get from point A to point B. Are there others we're missing? Hurdles that you overcame? Oh, and you mentioned way back the, the not having the the science classes and I would such. say
1: that was the biggest one. So after, uh, I took about three years off and took the LSATs mm-hmm. and applied to a bunch of law schools. Cause I was still thinking about doing that. And then, um, I applied to university of Montana and went skiing. And the next day, I
0: kind
1: <laughs> of, yeah, I retracted my application cause I wanted to go be a scientist. So I enrolled in engineering classes at MSU, um, to try to be a civil engineer and a hydrologist. And then that's when I was talking to Lindsay and she agreed to take me on.
0: So you took some extra classes. Yes,
1: a lot of them. Um, and,
0: and did that after you already had a degree, which is imp- pretty impressive commitment to knowing what you wanted.
1: And it's humbling as well, because you go back and you're 25 and there's all these 19 year olds that have just had 12 years of math and you haven't looked at you know, anything math related in a while. And so I was taking calculus and physics and chemistry and, um, it was daunting. Um, and it took a lot of commitment.
0: And that, uh, I f- completely forgot that you would mentioned the law school LSAT thing earlier, and you just decided that wasn't the direction you wanted to go. Even though there was an environmental ecological bent to that as right. well.
1: Well, I also uh, talked to a lot of lawyers and I talked to a lot of ecologists and fisheries biologists, and I'll tell you who, was happier out of the two it was not the lawyers at the yes, end of the day. Despite
0: making the extra extra money. Right.
1: They always add that as a caveat. Right. Like, yes, my car is nice, but um I'm eating alone.
0: <laughs> right. So you become a biologist because you love it, not because it's right. gonna make you rich. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly
0: So I'm here with Holden Reinert and he's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. And so what I want to get to now is your life here. MSU. Now you're a grad student at at MSU, so let's talk about your research, all these steps to get here.
1: Um, Okay, Uh, so right now I'm working um, on my master's thesis, uh, and we're looking at the biological responses to beaver mimicry structures as a restoration tool um, for drought management in southwest Montana.
0: Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by beaver mimicry and why that's even necessary?
1: Sure can. Um, So... Over the past i guess one hundred and fifty years, we or more so than that, since the West has opened up to European settlement, we have kind of systematically gone through and um, trapped beaver out of these drainages. It uh, kind of actually propelled like the opening of the western United States to civil uh, settlement by European colonies or european countries um, and so over time we 've decreased their numbers by um, a couple order of magnitudes, mm-hmm. um, and almost wiped them out. Um, and while their geographic ranges kind of remain the same, uh, the numbers in which they occupy that range have significantly decreased. And so what beavers normally do is they dam up water, right? We all know that they put sticks and mud and whatever else they can drag into the water and back up um, these uh, streams and create these ponds that allow for them to move and store food for the winter and create these lodges as well. Um, and so we have them being taken off the landscape, which means that you don't have this damming of water in the headwaters, um, which normally allows for this kind of temporary storage of runoff, especially in these snowmelt, uh, dominated hydrographs that we have in the Western United States. Um, and so streams have been altered as a result of land use in the area, mostly from uh, ranching and agriculture, channelizing and removal of riparian vegetation, and then removal of beavers. So you have um, these biotic components to um, watersheds that have been removed that alter kind of how water moves, water and nutrients move through space and time.
0: So it's the amount of water, the speed of the water, and therefore things like temperature and a whole host of other things that go along with that. So tell us about the beaver mimicry part.
1: Um, so we've removed beavers from the landscape and we've degraded these natural systems. Um, and thoughts are that to restore some of the processes and functionings that we value so much as a society, um, such as the flow of water in the late season for irrigation and the storage of that water, um, that we start acting like beavers again and start damming the water in these natural fashions that beavers would, um, especially in these low gradient streams to... Hopefully restore the processes that uh, give us cold, flowing water in, later in the season, and then uh, recharge our aquifers and uh, raise the water table so uh, riparian vegetation such as willows and cottonwoods can reestablish, which allows for bank stabilization and habitat creation and whole other suite All of, uh, of ecological stuff. benefits. Yeah.
0: And so, what what do you do to mimic?
1: Beavers. Um, you chop down a whole bunch <laughs> of trees, uh, mostly willows that are nearby. And then uh, we like to fashion uh, stakes out of juniper that have been encroaching on the landscape. Extra um, bonus. Extra bonus, I know. That's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> um, so we go out and pretty much pound stakes perpendicular to the flow. And then um, we collect and harvest willow branches and bows and kind of weave them through uh, wow, so this
0: really is a lot of work, a lot of handwork that that you're having to to do to really be. Yes, it's very labor like intensive.
1: Yeah, I know, I know, and beavers are very like tactful and smart, um, much smarter than us. And all in like this natural capacity. materials you're talking about, right? And on and site, really which um is great because it uh, decreases the price for restoration work, which can get relatively expensive over time.
0: Absolutely. And you are focused on what as the response to these structures?
1: Um, so nothing really biologically as a response has been looked at for these. A lot of it has to look or has looked at, uh, you know, physical habitat and physical processes being restored. So mostly sediment dynamics and then, uh, aquifer recharge. So groundwater, surface water interactions. And I am looking at, uh, the response of, um, secondary production, so heterotrophic biomass through time.
0: Okay, you're going to (laughs) define that for us.
1: Okay, uh, so all organisms that um, are not autotrophic, so don't fix energy based off non-carbon entities. So the things that eat plants. The things that eat plants um, within a stream, so there's this whole underwater world of macroinvertebrates um, that, in my opinion, don't get their fair time of day All um, the
0: underappreciated organisms
1: right that um are really responsible for like moving and transferring nutrients and energy in these streams
0: and because of their short lifespans and their um because a lot of them probably can't move very well at least when they're in the aquatic stage are really res- going to respond very quickly and directly to these treatments that you're applying
1: definitely yeah there's a tight linkage between uh, the physical processes that we're looking at such as hydrology and geomorphology of the stream and then the amount of organisms, so the um, biomass that accumulates of these organisms through time, and then the uh, structure of the communities of these organisms as well.
0: And so you're you're counting, looking at the n- the number of these organisms, you're looking at the kinds of them that there are in these streams, and are you measuring other things?
1: Um, yes, so I'm measuring the density um, and the biomass per. Uh, Meter squared, mm-hmm. and then the growth rates between sampling uh, sampling times,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then the. stick oh, you
0: expect the growth of these organisms to change depending on whether there's been beaver or not. Definitely. Beaver. So we a- we
1: actually have um a reference site which is riffles above uh, any manipulation, and then we have a beaver mediated site um, on the land that we're able to use. Real beaver. Real beaver. Hey. Hey oh I know it's <laughs> great. We love it. We uh, we support them being there whenever cool. possible. Um, and then we have these beaver mediated structures beaver dam analogs uh, down below and so what we what the literature shows is that um, secondary production increases in beaver mediated sites um, when compared to riffle sites and so we're seeing if the secondary production responds similarly to these natural beaver structures that we have on site
0: Oh very cool it's nice so you can make all these different comparisons, not just to the the untreated places but also to the real thing
1: right right it's very nice although we have um given that it was a high water year last year we had some issues we
0: had a lot of snow last year we, in montana
1: a lot of snow and it came off pretty quick yeah it'll um, be
0: interesting to see what happens this yeah. year because we're we've got some pretty good snowpack right going on i know right I, don't,
1: I don't think it's gonna end i've I I been
0: wondering gonna... that myself <laughs> it was
1: negative 36 when i woke up today so in march in march yeah
0: Good time. <laughs> All right. So, um, what is the best thing that you could find with your work? And and maybe I should preface that by saying, where are you in the process of data collection? And then, what's the best thing?
1: So I have finished um, collecting my field data this oh, summer. You um, you so, will
0: finish this summer? No, I have finished okay. the
1: past summer. I apologize. Right. Um, so I did two field seasons.
0: So you maybe already know what the best thing is.
1: Well, you, you, would, you would hope or think, but I had the uh, good fortune of uh, quadrupling my samples this, night, this last summer. So I just finished uh, processing my macroinvertebrate samples. Uh, it took me six months, and I ID'd 31,284 insects.
0: Very impressive.
1: Um.
0: That, that is one of the things that uh, sometimes we don't take into account is how much lab time yes follows the field time right
1: so it was only about like 40 to 60 hours of field work wow and then six months, months and
0: months and months yeah
1: a lot of time under the microscope so if you think uh you know being an ecologist or field ecologist is all time <laughs> all <glamour>. walking around <laughs> hugging trees it's uh, a lot of time hugging a microscope yep it's and making uh,
0: your eyes crazy
1: yeah and coding in R and mm. you know data management is all good things probably 90 percent of it right
0: Okay, but after all that, so, what's the greatest, coolest, most interesting thing that you could discover?
1: So the, I guess that's kind of a loaded question because the best thing would be that our biotic responses are what we think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the, changes, the f- changes in the physical processes that are being made with these beer structures will yield similar biotic responses that you would see in a natural world. Or natural beaver mediated sites, so you know, increased secondary production and shifting um, macro invertebrate communities to be more similar to beaver uh, dam habitats,
0: so that we can undo the effects that we've had, right? Today. The
1: years and mm-hmm. <laughs> decades and centuries of um, degradation. Um, so, that would be great news. I would love to find that. Um, although I think something more interesting would be that that's not the case, and that you know maybe production is increasing but assemblage is not, or may- missing or,
0: some component, or vice
1: versa. That we're not actually getting that right, and an opportunity to kind of improve upon the restoration process mm-hmm. and to have a monitoring plan that is done scientifically in a way that you can yield empirical results in order to make necessary changes and improvements to um, any restoration process would be fantastic.
0: Yeah. And that leads me to ask, why is the work that you're doing important?
1: Um, Well, with, you know, predicted climate change models, um, we're looking at drier summers, longer summers, and then um, earlier runoff from our snowpack. And so a lot of that in Montana, in southwest Montana, that will affect a lot of our agriculture and and, uh, ranching industries. And so what we're doing right now is, Using you know process based, excuse me, process based restoration techniques to increase natural water storage and then improve habitat. Um, win-win.
0: so win win.
1: So win win. Um, and then you know there's strong linkages between aquatic and terrestrial systems, especially within streams. Um, there's a lot of turnover and a lot of uh, species rely on subsidies from aquatic systems, such as uh, macrovertebrate emergence. Um, A number of bird and spider and um, amphibian species um, really key in on that. So there's ecological benefits as far as creating a stronger uh, riparian community and allowing for terrestrial aquatic interactions to persist. And then um, more economic ecosystem services based benefit where uh, we're increasing natural water storage and it's not having an adverse effect on uh, ecological communities within the stream.
0: Seems like real clear connections and real clear benefits. Yeah. um, All over the place. Definitely. Well, thanks. That's really interesting. Um, Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you if you have a favorite species and if you've got a plant great. And if you've got an animal great, and if you've got one of each great.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. So I'd tell say. So uh,
0: tell, us, tell us why.
1: Uh, favorite organism animal would probably be a uh, good old steelhead.
0: Mm-hmm. Just the
1: anagenous rainbow trout.
0: Okay. And and is there a particular reason why, other than the perhaps obvious that you've spent so much time in streams and aquatic systems over the years?
1: Um, you know, they're just this regal fish that shouldn't, It's it's a great juxtaposition of Kind of a organism in its habitat, you know, they come in off the uh ocean and they're chrome bright, and you can catch them in a rainforest, and they're the size of your leg, and <laughs> they just, you know, they're they're like these silver unicorns, and then everything around them is so verdant and lush and green. It's kind of this odd juxtaposition of color and contrast.
0: I like that. It's the unicorn of the <laughs> <laughs> underwater. Yeah, the underwater unicorn. Do you have a favorite plant?
1: I'm I'm gonna say cottonwood.
0: Oh, so we've got the connection to water here still. Yeah, I wondered if I, you'd go aquatic st- vegetation. I don't
1: stray too far. I, don't, yeah. I guess I'm reasonably predictable. But um, yeah, I live in Dillon now in the summer, and I would really love for them to have some more cottonwoods around. Um, it's a pretty sunny place, and there aren't too many trees around, and it's, uh, sagebrush everywhere and a lot of willows, but um always love a cottonwood.
0: Yeah, they've got some great leaves blown in the wind.
1: Yeah, a good place to take a nap.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Holden, really, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us and tell us more about your work. And I wish you the best of luck as you finish up figuring out what all those uh, tens of thousands of, of samples tell you. Um, I look forward to hearing what comes out of your work.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me.
0: And thanks to you for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. If you like what we're doing, please share this podcast with a friend. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher.